Hey folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries podcast. This is the second in a series of 16 lessons we did on the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. So the first city that we're going to go to today is called Sardis. Now, as repeatedly asked, why start with Sardis, which happens to be the fifth church on the list? And the reason that I want to start with Sardis is because the references that John puts in the letter are so prominent to the history and geography of the city that they create a wonderful picture for you. And so if you're new to the idea of studying Revelation in its original context, Sardis is a great city to start out. It helps you understand how John is going to use that context, and it's got great visuals. So as a reminder, the original teaching was done live, and I have all the pictures of Sardis in that presentation. So if you're listening and you wanted to see a picture of what I was talking about, make sure you go to our YouTube page, the Fig Tree Ministry YouTube page, find this video, Sardis Part 1, and then you can find the place in the video that has the photo that I'm talking about. So we end up doing two lessons on Sardis. There's a lot of stuff there to, to, uh, to dig into, and Sardis is one of the great cities of the ancient world. So we hope you enjoy this lesson on the letter to the church that's at Sardis. Today, we're going to be traveling, virtually anyways, to a city called Sardis. Now, Skip just asked me, Sardis is the fifth in line of in the list of churches. Why start with Sardis? And part of the reason is that so much of the letter, as we'll see, you can connect to the culture and the history of Sardis. And it's plus quite visual. Uh, Ephesus gets a little bit more abstract, and that's the first one. So Sardis is fun because it's uh, lots of pictures. But anyways, let's get going. Here's We're going to go to Sardis. Hopefully everyone got their handout and was able to uh, download that. So let me do a review real quick. Just to locate everybody where we're going to be going. This is a view, of course, of the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean Sea right there in the blue, everybody can see that. To the south is Africa, and we have Egypt down here to the south. If you go north and west, you'll see the boot of Italy. That's Rome, and of course the seat of the Roman Empire at the time that John is writing this, which is about 90 AD, 90 to 95. He didn't have a, uh, a copyright or a date timestamp back then but that's about when scholars believe he was writing it. Then we have Athens. That's about the center of the Mediterranean there. And then over here, way over in the east, which seemed to be just the backwoods of the Roman Empire, is where the gospel begins, the good news that God is reigning in the world. And that good news begins in Galilee as Jesus goes out with his disciples. It ends up in Jerusalem. And of course, the Pentecost event in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is sent out and they're commanded to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth for them is where we're going to be going, Asia. 
So the gospel went in this direction, which is interesting to note because almost all of your New Testament is going to be written very specifically to that part of the world and a very small part of that part of the world on top of that. So this is, of course, modern day Turkey, and that's where we're going to travel to to take a look and see what is there. How are they speaking that? If we go closer, they call this, uh, the ancient times, they call that Asia Minor. Now, in Asia Minor, the gospel really, it, it incubates in a sense in a very small area of Asia Minor. It's this, it's well, it's that direction, and then it's right here where that circle is. There's a series of ridgelines, of mountain ridges and valleys, and all of the cities that we're going to go to are connected by those mountain ridgelines and valleys. So if we go closer to the seven cities, you can see I have a, a pin in each one, and each city is connected via these valleys. And these were major roads, ancient roads that had been built called the Royal Road that came and divided. So when Paul walked from uh, Jerusalem over to Ephesus. He went on that royal road. So John is pastoring a church. John lives here in Ephesus. He's writing to the other churches under his care. And when he writes the letter, he puts them in a specific order. Now, Skip asked this question earlier. Why that order? And scholars recognize that the Roman Empire was fairly sophisticated when it comes to mail and mail delivery. So it's following the mail route. So that would make sense. He's telling the postman where to drop off the letter as he's going. Notice, too, if he if John was sending an email to one church, he's CCing all the other churches. So he's basically disclosing the business of all, all the other churches to everybody else. But John goes in this order. He says to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you can see that makes a counter or a clockwise circle. And then the postman would come right back to Ephesus. So those are the churches that John is, is pastoring specifically in chapter one of Revelation. Those are the churches that, uh, the Bible says John's writing this letter to. Okay. Let's go closer now because we want to go look at Sardis. So if we go closer to Sardis, Sardis sits right at the edge of what's called the Hermes River Valley. So that Hermes River Valley makes an extraordinarily fertile valley. Today, it's grapevines as far as you could see, uh, mostly not for wine, but for raisins. But it is, it's a fertile river valley. And Sardis sits right on the edge of what's called the Timolus Mountains. So the Timolus Mountains, there's a little spur that sticks out Sardis is built right on that spur. You'll see why in a few minutes. All right, we go a little bit closer to Sardis. So we can see here's the Hermes River just to the north. You've got that fertile river valley and the Timolus Mountains here to the south. And then Sardis, we'll, we'll take a look at the city, actually extends like a bit of a rectangle. It has two mountains, very distinct, that jut out and then the city that's down in the valley. So that's where Sardis is as we move closer. Now let's go take a look at what's there. So one of the defining pieces of Sardis, and we'll talk a lot about that mountain in the background, 
is that that right there is the Acropolis of Sardis. And that's what made Sardis famous. Because for 700 to 1,000 years, the city of Sardis sat on top of that Acropolis. So that's what, we'll, we'll talk a lot about that this morning. That's the Acropolis. If we turn around and look in the other direction, that's the Hermes River Valley. So you can see some of the ancient ruins there in the foreground of Sardis. But in the background, you can see, obviously, that's a fertile valley. And one thing I want to note, just keep this in the back of your mind, in this picture right here, way off in the horizon, I'll put a circle around it, you see what looks like a mountain. That's actually a man-made hill. So over on that side of the valley, and it's connected to the Sardis story, on that side of the valley are hundreds of these man-made hills, and, and we'll take a look at those in detail. But I just want to point out that's part of the story of Tosardis. Okay, so that's the valley. There we are, a little better picture of the valley. So what we're going to do, we have to remember, last week I used Laodicea as a, as a reference point. But today we want to say, what would it be like if all of us were part of a small house church living in Sardis somewhere around 90 AD and we get a letter from Pastor John and someone walks in and says, hey, let's read the letter out loud. And as they're reading it, the question we want to ask is, what would we hear? That's the key. What would we be hearing that has to do with something that uh, Ray Vanderland use the term text to context, meaning John's going to take the Old Testament text, because it, remember, at this point in time, there is no New Testament yet. It hasn't been, it's, many of the, Paul's letters have been written, the Gospels, some of them may have been written, but they haven't been formalized into a New Testament. So our Bible is the Old Testament. So we have the Old Testament. We take that text of the Old Testament, and John's going to connect it to the, the cultural and historical context of the land there in Turkey. And specifically, when he gets to the letter to Sardis, what does he say to Sardis that we can hear loud and clear and say, aha, I know what John's talking about. So that's our main question. We're not going to read, this is not a class in Revelation of how the end times are going to happen or what's going to happen in the future. That will be for another day, I suppose. Um, Today is more historical and cultural context. All right, so let's go take a look. I mentioned earlier, that's the Acropolis of Sardis, prominent. Now, it doesn't look like much today, but it was a little bit bigger in its, in its past. But that's the Acropolis, Acro, upper, so the upper city. This is the polis, the lower city. One powerful thing about having pictures to show you is if I said Acropolis, many of you have been to Athens, that's the picture that would come to mind. So if I can show you a picture of the Acropolis at Sardis, at least it helps you put something in your, in your mind that's not the one in Athens. Okay, so you have the Acropolis, you have the polis. That's where the majority of the people lived. Then what was distinct about Sardis is another mountain. And this mountain, right over here, it's just a little bit to the, to the west, 
is called a necropolis. Now, Greek necro is death. So, a necropolis. That's a massive cemetery. They have caves in there. They found thousands of, of graves from over the centuries where the they would bury their dead. And I'll show you another place too. But that's a very prominent peak right next to the Acropolis. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So that's another part of the city, the city of the dead. Okay. So a little bit of um, history. That Acropolis, now Harvard University excavated in the 1950s. So a lot of this, what you'll hear, comes from Harvard's excavations. They estimate that that Acropolis was anywhere from 25 to 30 acres prior to the year 17 AD. So 25 to 30 acres. Well, what happened in 17 AD? Well, in 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that rocked that this entire region, all the churches, but specifically destroyed Sardis. And what you see there, those those really steep cliffs, is that 25 to 30 acres melted like jello. And so this the land you see in the foreground is actually used to be the Acropolis. And in an instant, that mountain collapsed and it killed thousands of people living below in the polis. So let me give you a little bit. Yeah, so this, all of that in the foreground that you see, the, those rolling hills, that used to be Acropolis until 17 AD when it collapsed. Let me give you a little bit different shot of that. So you can see all those hills, those looks like foothills right behind us. So in an instant, the Acropolis, the place where people lived, became the necropolis in a sense, because it suddenly buried a whole bunch of people. Now, what eventually happened was, that was 17 AD. By John's day, you have people living up there in the upper city, the Acropolis. You have people who started to rebuild on these hills. The middle city, they couldn't move the dirt, so they just rebuilt on top of it. So you have an upper, a middle, and now the lower city down here. So you get some rebuilding, although the, that Acropolis went from 25 acres down to 5 acres. So it was a fairly drastic um, reduction in size in 17 AD. Okay, that earthquake is noted by a number of ancient historians. Strabo, Tacitus, and Pliny the Elder, at least. Here's what Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder lived from 23 to 79. He was a Roman naturalist and historian. He says that the earthquake of 17 AD was the greatest earthquake in human memory. That's Pliny's description of that earthquake. And he talks about the cities that were destroyed. Now, don't turn there because we don't have time. But let me show you something in the book of Revelation. And you can read it later. 
Chapter 16, verse 18 and 19 says this. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Now look at the next sentence. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man mankind had been on earth. Now scholars have noted that is almost exactly what Pliny says about the earthquake. Now Pliny died in 73. John's writing in about 90. So we don't know if John is trying to quote Pliny. He's alluding to Pliny. If he, if he knows Pliny. But scholars note, boy, that sounds exactly what Pliny says about that particular earthquake in 17 AD. So no earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. Now look at verse 19. This might just give it away. The great city split into three parts. Now Sardis was considered the greatest of all the cities in the Greek antiquity. So is it possible that what John is doing is he's weaving in something from their culture, the earthquake that split the city and the cities of the nations collapsed. So you could at least see, now we don't know what that means in the future. If there's going to be a giant earthquake, there's earthquakes all the time. But at least if you and I were all sitting in our house church in Sardis and we heard that sentence, we would say, I know what John's talking about. My grandparents were in that quake. My uncle's house was destroyed in that quake. I know what he's talking about because that's what happened at Sardis. So I just want to show how John weaves all of this in. It's really remarkable to see what he's doing. So that's the earthquake. And of course, that's, a, that's an apocalyptic type event right there. That'll change the world as you know it. Now, this picture right here, we're descending from, we, we climbed about halfway up the Acropolis. We're mo working our way back down off the Acropolis. So you can tell it's pretty high. It's somewhere around 1,500 feet at the top. This is the Necropolis. That's the city of the dead off in the distance. And the polis is down here in the valley. And you can see that the, all the land that we're walking on was at one point the Acropolis. And you can see it made it all the way to the city center, uh, that land as it melted out. It's fairly interesting. If you, if you, when you climb up that, you, can, you realize that that ground is not as solid as you, one might think. Uh, it's quite gravelly. And uh, you can see if you just start shaking a little bit, things are going to start to fall apart. Okay. Now, there's something else from the, the history of Sardis that we have to, to uh, look at. Sardis, throughout its history, had an obsession with death similar to the Egyptians. So it, would, it was an obsession with death, resurrection, renewal, the afterlife, in a way, and it's an obsession that you don't find in the other cities around that part of Turkey. So it stands out. So the first thing you notice is they have that very prominent necropolis, the city of the dead, or the dead city, you could call it. So that's one thing. Second, the goddess, the main goddess of Sardis, is a goddess called Kibbola. 
And we're going to talk Kibbola next week. No time today. But you have to see, as John is writing each of these letters, he's going to go after their gods and goddesses. Because he has to refute what these other goddesses claim, or gods, for that matter. So the goddess Kibbola is said to be, well, she's famous in Sardis for resurrecting the dead. She's like a Mother Earth goddess. So you could see how Mother Earth goes through an annual cycle of death, resurrection, or death and renewal in the springtime, only to get back into the fall and suffering and death again. So it's a constant cycle of Mother Earth, and that's who they worship. But anyway, she's a mediator between life and death. Wait till next week. I'll show you where they put their temple. And you, you think, ah, they know exactly what they're doing, or at least they think they know what they're doing. Okay, another thing about Sardis was the ancient city of Sardis had these burial mounds, tumulus, they're called. And that's what I showed you earlier in that picture. So let me take you right across the valley. If you look where this arrow is pointing, it looks like a normal hill. That's actually a pyramid-like structure built for a grave, uh, a burial mound. So we have burial mounds in the United States. We find them all over the world. There's hundreds across the valley from Sardis. Let me give you a little bit different shot right where that arrow is pointing. So that picture is taken from the Acropolis looking across the valley. Now that particular one, that's a gigantic mound. And it's said to be to a king named Attalus. If we go, a closer picture of it is that's the mound right there that I was just pointing to. Comparable to the pyramids in Egypt. But there's literally hundreds of them. Here's another one that I just took. Sorry, the picture's a little dark. That I just took that through the, the bus window. But the, the road you're on just suddenly travels through what used to be an ancient burial mound location. It's just like the Egyptians building their pyramids and tombs. So did... Sardis, and they, they, it was a bit of their obsession with death. Okay, so you have those. You have the necropolis. You have the goddess Kibbola. You have the ancient burial mounds. Finally, what scholars have noted is that since the earthquake in 17 AD, when it brought down the majority of that acropolis, people had a hard time figuring out, were they looking at the Acropolis or were they looking at the Necropolis? It became confusing. Let me show you. So which one are we looking at? That right there is the Necropolis. And if I turn around and take a picture, there's the Acropolis. Now what's interesting is let me go back and there's the necropolis. And then here's the acropolis. So from certain vantage points or from a distance, it's hard to tell which one is which. Which is the city of life? Which is the city of death? In fact, there was a book written called The Seven Cities of the Apocalypse. It was written, I think, in 1907. They had a picture of the necropolis, but they labeled it the Acropolis. Even the, even the scholarly book got the, the two mountains confused. So, 
we're, we're walking up at a distance from Sardis. We see two mountains, but you can't quite dis tell the distinction between the two of them. Now listen to John. Now you can turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation 3. This is the letter to Sardis. So let's go there and take a look now at how John is going to open up his letter. Okay, so Revelation 3, verse 1 and 2, says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, I'll address this next week. Those seven stars, we talked a little bit about this before uh, in a class on, re on resurrection, but this has to do partly with resurrection. I'll show you where they get that from. John says this, I know your deeds. Now look at the next part of the sentence. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, does that fit Sardis? Absolutely it does. So many scholars think that that sentence right there, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, has to do with those two mountains. I can't tell the difference anymore. Which one are you? Now it could have to do with all of the other things that they're obsessed with about death. Then John says this, wake up, strengthen what remains. So notice they're not totally dead. To quote the princess bride, maybe they're mostly dead. So wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So John's giving them a a stern warning, but he's using the context and their history and their goddess, because if you're dead and you wake up, well, that's a resurrection type thing. We're going to wake up the part of you that's died. He's using all of that, and who knows where he's intersecting on that. But clearly, if we're sitting in that house church in Sardis, and we hear that, we think, oh yeah, that describes us. And so it's a warning for us to wake up. Okay, let's keep going. This Acropolis, they don't exactly know when the city was settled. 1200 BC, 1000 BC. So by the time John's writing, that could be an 1100-year-old city. That's an old city. But the city started on top of that Acropolis. Now, anybody with any military sense will tell you, the main reason is, is because of defense. It over it overlooks the entire valley. And if you can get up there, you can keep anybody from climbing up and attacking you because it sits 1,500 to 2,000 feet above the valley floor, almost straight up. So throughout history, the Lydian Empire had its headquarters or their the king's palace in Sardis. It was a very wealthy city. There's a, there's a river or a stream that comes out of the mountains there called the Pactolus. And the myth is, is that the Pactolus River was the first place that they ever got gold. And that the king named Croesus, there's a saying, rich is Croesus, that Croesus was the first one to mint gold coins. He lived in Sardis. He lived on top of that Acropolis. Croesus had a fellow in his court who loved to tell stories that had a moral lesson to him. We call them fables, and his name was Aesop. 
So Aesop is from Sardis. He would have been part of the king's court. So throughout history, this Acropolis plays a prominent role in the history of Sardis. Let me show you a couple things that happened in regard to that Acropolis, and we'll see how John uses that in his letter to Sardis. So I mentioned the name of a, uh, a king named Croesus. So he lived in the 500s, and he was considered, well, at that time, Sardis was considered the greatest city in that region. And it was the wealthiest. Like I said, there's a saying, rich as Croesus, to talk about somebody who has a ton of wealth. And he was considered to be the, the first person to mint gold coins. Croesus, let me go the next step. At the same time, you have a Persian king named Cyrus. Now, we know Cyrus from the Bible. He's the one who, once he defeated the Babylonians, released the Jews from Babylonian captivity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. So this bit of history happens between Croesus and Cyrus. Now, what Croesus did, and this it's a long story, I'll make it as short as possible. Croesus went to see the oracle at Delphi. Now, we all know that if you go to a fortune teller, the fortune teller is going to give you the vaguest amount of information to tell you what might happen so that whatever happens will probably fit what, with what they're saying. So Croesus goes to see the oracle at Delphi. The oracle says, King Croesus, if you cross this river, now there's a particular river that he would have crossed. If you cross that river, a great empire will fall. Now, right across that river happened to be King Cyrus, and Croesus is trying to figure out if he should go to war. Well, Croesus took that as a sign to say, yes, I'm going to go to war with King Cyrus. So he does. He crosses the river, and he immediately gets defeated. So he pulls his army back, and they pull back up, and they settle in at the top of Sardis. Now they're in their stronghold. King Croesus follows them, and what ends up happening is what you could call the Siege of Sardis in 547 BC. So King Cyrus the Persian is down in the valley. King Croesus is comfortably sitting at the top of his Acropolis. And they start to become lax, thinking nobody could ever take us, right? Because we're sitting way up here on, on top of this Acropolis. Well, it turns out that King Cyrus the Persian had a fairly smart soldier named Heroades. Now, Heroades was watching one day a group of the Lydian soldiers on top of the Acropolis playing a game, and one of the soldiers' helmets fell off, and the helmet rolled halfway down the Acropolis. So as Heroades is watching this take place, a few minutes later, or sometime later, he notices that all of a sudden the soldier appears out of the side of the mountain and gets his helmet. And he goes back, and he disappears. He goes back up to the top. So Heroes 80s thought, you know what? There's a place, there's an entrance to this that they're not guarding. So he goes to Cyrus. Cyrus puts together a band of Navy SEALs, or whatever you want to call it back then. And in the middle of the night, they go up, they get into the Acropolis of Sardis, and they destroy 
the Lydian Empire in one night. They didn't even have to fight a battle. The news, of course, spread. They couldn't believe. So that, you know, if you go back to that oracle at Delphi, when she said a great empire will fall, well, unfortunately, it was Croesus's empire that fell. So she's got a 50-50 chance of being right. Okay, so that Acropolis, who everybody thought could never be defeated, was taken in one night because they got lax. That's part of their history. By the way, on your sheet, I put a footnote. You can read about it in Herodotus. Herodotus is a historian. I footnoted the link. So if you go to that link, you can read the story I just told you, although I may have embellished it just a little bit to paraphrase, to make it a little more exciting. Now, if that had happened only once, that would be one thing. But guess what happened 300 years later? Well, let's fast forward. Now you have two Greek kings, Antiochus III. His son, by the way, is Antiochus IV, the one who uh, tried to outlaw the reading of the Bible and the Maccabees and all of that. Antiochus III and another Greek king are battling over territory. And it came down to Sardis. So the other Greek king is up on the Acropolis of Sardis, and what you get is Antiochus III lays siege to Sardis again in 213 BC. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, once again, you have a soldier. This time his name is Lagarus. He's a he's a Crete. He's from Crete. He notices that as they're as they're uh, maybe killing a pig or a dog or a, a donkey that died, they threw over the side of the hill or whatever. That vultures would come down to to get them the whatever's left over. And when the vultures were done eating, they would go sit on a on a specific spot on the hill or on, uh, on the wall. And he, and Lagarus thought, well, you know what? If those vultures are sitting there on the wall, it means nobody's guarding it. They don't think anybody can get up there. So Lagarus gets together a band of Green Berets or whoever, and in the middle of the night, climbs up, gets inside the Acropolis, and once again, the Acropolis of Sardis falls overnight. So twice in their history, they thought nobody could defeat them, and in the middle of the night, they were defeated. Now that's the history of Sardis. Let's go back to Revelation 3. Listen to John's words. Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, does that sound like Sardis history? Absolutely. Twice it happened. Maybe even a third time because the earthquake that happened happened in the middle of the night. So in the middle, in the blink of an eye, in the middle of the night, that whole Acropolis fell. Now, the first two times were because man got lax. The third time was because of the earthquake. But either way, you can see how John is speaking to the culture and the history of Sardis. Now, here's the question, though. Where is John, in this particular verse, getting his material? 
Well, as we mentioned, he's getting his material from the Old Testament. And this time, what I want you to do is turn to the book of Obadiah. And the reason I want you to turn there is because we don't give Obadiah a lot of love these days. He's, he's right between Amos and Jonah. It's only one chapter, so it's probably one page or one page and a quarter in your Bible. This is absolutely amazing what John does, and I'll show you why. It's just remarkable how John's weaving Obadiah into this. Okay, so Obadiah, there's only one, there's only one uh, chapter, so it's Obadiah 1, verse 3. Now just listen and think, Sardis, right? The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rocks and make your home on the heights. Does that sound like Sardis? Absolutely. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Does that sound like Sardis? Absolutely. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nests among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night... Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? So John's pulling his material from Obadiah. And it speaks right into Sardis. Because they think, who can bring me down? And at the moment you think, who can bring me down? Something's going to bring you down. Now that, we can see, clearly speaks into Sardis culture and history. But why else is John choosing Obadiah, right? But, oh wait, there's more. It gets better. There's one book in the Old Testament, one that mentions the ancient name for the city of Sardis. Guess, guess what book that is? Obadiah. So look at verse 20. So verse 20 is talking about different people groups from Israel. This company of, of Israelite exiles who are in Cana, they're going to possess the land as far as Zarephath. Then it says this, the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Safarad. Well, guess what the word, the ancient name and Aramaic name of Sardis is Safarad. So John picks the only book in the Old Testament that mentions Sardis by name and then pulls the text from that book to speak into the culture and to tell them to wake up, remind them that in a moment they can fall. Now here's what's I think is totally what's remarkable about this. Jews had been living in Sardis for hundreds of years. Scholars think that when he says the exiles from Jerusalem, that as people were being pulled out of into captivity that the kings would send some of those people groups to live other places. They couldn't keep them all in one location. They distribute them throughout their territory. So they scholars think that there are a, a group of Jews ended up living in Sardis. So when the good news gets there, they've already got their Old Testament. Now, if you live in Sardis and you have your Old Testament, whether you're Jewish or whether you're a a God-fearer, a Gentile who believes in God, how proud are you of the book of Obadiah that it mentions your city? 
You're going to be telling everybody about that. It's not like us. We look at Obadiah and think, what? Obadiah? They would know ex they would know every detail of Obadiah because it mentions their city. It's just human nature to be proud of. If your city ends up in God's Bible, you're going you're gonna to be telling people about the book of Obadiah, or at least pulling out the scroll and showing them how you show up in the text. So I just think it's so cool how John pulls that in and uses that that book to speak to exactly the city that's mentioned in that book. Okay, let's finish up with this. So what are our lessons? Now, the lessons from Sardis, these aren't just coming from the Bible, although they do, they are conveyed in the Bible. The ancient writers that wrote about Sardis, they said, hey, these are the lessons when you look at the history of the, the, the Acropolis falling in the middle of the night to one soldier or to a group of special forces. So, first of all, don't be complacent, right? John's telling him, wake up. Strengthen what remains in you. Don't become complacent. Because at the moment you become complacent is the moment things are going to start to fall apart. Pride comes before the fall. There's a proverbial saying. We all know that one. That's in the text as well. Don't rely on your riches. At the time Croesus fell, that first, uh, when, when Cyrus was laying siege, it was considered the richest city in the world. And all of the riches couldn't defend it from falling. So don't rely on your riches. Don't boast in a time of prosperity. That's another lesson from Sardis. And then, of course, John is yelling to them, wake up, pay attention. Don't become complacent. That's very important. Now, the question that people have is did the city did the people in Sardis listen to John or were they, were they simply a dead church right one of the tendencies when we when we read the book of revelation we read about Sardis and John says you know you have a reputation of being alive but you're dead our tendency is to think ah those people were dead in their faith and they and they stayed that way and they died dead and they were no good for nothing but that's not what happened in Sardis. They paid attention because within a hundred years, Sardis is a vibrant Christian community. There's a famous uh, preacher, I guess you could say, from Sardis, Melito of Sardis, who's arguing, arguing vehemently with the Jews in Sardis about um, whether Jesus is Messiah or not. But let me show you a couple things that come from Sardis. It's so cool. Uh, what these people did. They certainly did not die. And we'll I'll give you another example next week when we talk Kibbeleh, but check this out. This is the main road uh, in Sardis. It's what you, Those stones you see in the foreground are the actual Roman road. So the, the Romans built unbelievable roads, better than our roads here in San Diego, I suppose, because we're constantly having to fix those that road called the Royal Road, they estimate 15 million people walked on that road every year. And right beyond those roads, you see those colonnades. There's a colonnade where you see the columns. And just beyond that sidewalk are shops. So as all the people are walking through on their way, either east or west, to, into Sardis, you can go in to stop at some of these shops to get whatever you need. Restaurants. Um, I'll show you one. Well, let's go there. Check out this shop and what they're displaying as soon as you walk in the door. Now, what you're looking at there 
is a dye vat. It's for dyeing. They made they made dye, purple dye, and they would dye material and then sell it to people on the street. So they're they're dyers of purple. Now, apparently, when when Harvard first excavated, they found this. It comes from the the second century, so that's in the two hundreds. That type of cross right there is called the anchor cross. And their idea was, gee, the cross is the anchor of our faith. So you can see the bottom of the cross, the base, is like an anchor. Actually, the whole thing's a bit like an anchor. But that's called an anchor cross from the, the 200s. Okay, when Harvard first found this, they thought it was a baptistry, baptistry. And then as they dug it further and excavated, they found all the dye inside of it. And they realized that these people were dyers of purple. Now... What's even cooler, oh wait, there's more, the one that's on your right, the one that's on your right, it has Greek writing at the bottom of it. You'll notice that that thing's been flipped upside down. And that Greek writing is actually a testimony to the goddess Kibbola. Somebody's writing their testimony of what Kibbola did for them. So they took this thing that used to tell you how great Kibbola was, flipped it upside down, chiseled off as much as they could of about Kibbola, and then put the cross on it. So not only are they telling you, we're Jesus people when you walk in our shop, but what are they saying about Kibbola? I mean, you're immediately insulting that goddess by flipping it over and chiseling out her te the testimony to her. That's bold, because the believers in Kibbola in that city are not going to be happy that you've done that to their goddess if they think that their city's fate depends on if the goddess is happy. So that's pretty cool. Let me show you one more. This is the doorway to a restaurant right down the street. Now it's hard to see, but there's an anchor cross chiseled in very neatly into that marble. I'll put a line down the middle there and then a, right across. There, there's the cross. Let me back up because it's just tough to see on that marble. But that's go entering into a restaurant. So those people decided, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to put my cross right on the road where millions of people are going to walk by me every single day. And when they walk in my shop, they're going to know exactly who I follow. So Sardis was not a dead church. They didn't stay that way. Now, I think John's giving them that warning, wake up, but they didn't stay dead. Okay. I probably couldn't have given you any more detailed information in the last 50 minutes, so let me allow your brains to uh, 